Isaiah 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? will attend and listen for the time to come. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up. But he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. Nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, 
For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of God. Elizabeth Elliot gave this account. At dinner recently with a group of Christian high school and college students, I asked whether they had any heroes. There was silence. They looked at each other, then looked blankly back at me. Heroes? What's a hero? For ages, people have drawn inspiration from other great people, from David, Horatio at the bridge, George Washington. Why is heroism diminished in our time? What's happened to us? Cynicism is so pervasive today that the extent of our disillusionment is taken as a measure of our maturity. Marilyn Robinson describes this turn of mind. When a good man or woman stumbles, we say, I knew it all along. And when a bad one has a gracious moment, we sneer at the hypocrisy. It's as if there's nothing to mourn or to admire. Only a hidden narrative, now and then apparent through the false surface narrative, and the hidden narrative, because it's ugly and sinister, is therefore true. That's darkness. Now, what has happened to us is that we've lost our sense of God. And when we lose God, and Christians lose their sense of God, and when we lose God, we just don't, we don't lose just religion, we lose everything worth living for. Do you know that God wants to give it all back? Better than ever. God has a purpose for us yet. He says in our passage, I created you for my glory. And I want to reshape everything in your life with an inspiring new sense of destiny. When we come to the end of Isaiah in chapters 65 and 66, God says, I'm going to renew the whole universe. New heavens and a new earth. But where does God begin? 
that work of cosmic renovation right here with us at two levels. This week we see the God who reforms people who have lost their purpose. And next week we see the God who revives people who have lost their vitality. The renovation, here's the plan of God. The renovation of the universe begins with us in reformation and revival. Reformation is the recovery of God's purpose for us. Revival is the recovery of God's life in us. And we need both. And God loves to renew confused and tired people. Reformation means a lot to us Presbyterians. Our roots go deep into the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, of course. John Calvin influenced John Knox when Knox was staying in Geneva. Knox took the Reformation back to Scotland. And what emerged was a worldwide Presbyterian movement. Now, what was God accomplishing back then? I think of it this way. He hauled the ship, which we call the church, up into dry dock, scraped away in the Reformation, scraped away 1,500 years' worth of encrustations and worn-out human traditions that were slowing it down, refitted that ship with fresh gospel understandings, and relaunched a seaworthy vessel that is still going strong. But Reformation never stops. Our constant tendency is toward rudderless inconsequentiality. And God is constantly getting us back on course to our true destiny. What then is Reformation? Reformation is God reinvigorating in our hearts a passion for His purpose. It is God awakening in us a love for His standards. It is God preparing us for the display of His glory as we reshape every aspect of our lives and our church to that end. Now in this passage, Isaiah guides us toward personal and corporate reformation. We need it. Every generation needs reformation and not just revival. We need revival. But we also need reformation. A.W. Tozer puts it bluntly. A revival of the kind of Christianity which we've had in America the last 50 years would be the greatest tragedy of this century. A tragedy which would take the church a hundred years to get over. What's the point of reinvigorating a kind of Christianity that has lost its way? It's not just more power that we need, though we do need that. But we also need a new kind of Christianity. Reformed according to God's great purpose for us. Not according to our notions. But according to God's word alone. 
Too many churches talk about the chief end of man as glorifying and enjoying God. But the meaning of that has never sunk in enough for those churches to pursue their chief end with glad intentionality. They just drift. Little realizing how much more there is for them in Christ than they have yet apprehended. We need reformation again. Now, Isaiah's reforming message, you see, has four points. The problem God confronts, the remedy his grace provides, the reason for his intervention, and the outcome in our experience. So we want to take a close look at our need. We want to delight in God's remedy, humble ourselves before his purpose, and give ourselves permission to enter into newness. So let's look at the first point, the problem. Chapter 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now, when we remember our context, Isaiah has been talking about leading the blind nations, the pagan nations, out of their darkness into the light of God, earlier in chapter 42. So, when we come to these verses, and he's addressing the deaf and the blind, who would you expect these deaf and blind people to be. When we read, who is blind but fill in the blank, we would expect that blind person to be the idolatrous nations, wouldn't we? We would, and that would be wrong. Who is blind but my servant? Now, wait a minute. Last week, we saw in chapter 42, the earlier part, that the servant of the Lord brings justice to the nations. That's what chapters, uh, verses 1 through 4 are all about. But now we read that the Lord's servant is blind and deaf. It says, who is deaf as my messenger whom I send? The messenger God sends doesn't himself hear the message. He's deaf. In verses 1 through 4, the servant of the Lord brings perfection to the world. In verses 18 through 25, the servant fails. What's going on here? There's a clue in verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? The nation Israel was the servant of the Lord. But they were blind to God's purpose and deaf to God's word. They failed in their mission. So God eventually sent the ideal servant, the true servant, the ultimate servant in Jesus Christ. And so verses 1 through 4 are looking forward to Jesus. And verses 18 through 25 are looking around at Israel, who is as blind as the pagans. Now... What is it that clueless Israel fails to see? What was God's purpose for them that they never understood? Verse 21. 
The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Israel's life mission was to make God's law glorious in the world. How? By showing how beautiful it is to live for God according to his word. Israel didn't do that. But Jesus did. His whole life embodied God's law. And people noticed Jesus made God's law glorious. And people flocked to him in response. That is our mission too. When we're like Jesus according to God's word, people sense that they have encountered something they have always wanted. Francis Schaeffer describes how this can actually happen. One of the nicest compliments I've ever heard about Labrie, Labrie uh, was their ministry in Switzerland. <laughs> Cutting-edge evangelism to modern and postmodern people in the 20th century. Very exciting. One of the nicest compliments I've ever heard about Labrie was from a young architect who made a profession of faith at Labrie, a young architect from Zurich. He was saying goodbye one day. I don't know if you know the Swiss. They often shake hands twice or three times when they're saying goodbye. Thus, when he came back the second time to shake my hand, I thought he was only following the Swiss custom. But he said, I want to tell you Every time I've been here and I go away, I feel like a human being. And we shook hands. I've never heard anything nicer than that in my whole life. When our life together makes the way of God glorious in human life. People can see it's what they want. That was the influence Jesus had. That was his impact. That is God's call for us. And that strategy is not our self-flattering ambition. It is the purpose of God. But back in Isaiah's day, Israel forfeited that purpose and invited God's discipline. Verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers, the Babylonians? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk? Now, do you see how it goes from we have sinned to they would not walk? Hebrew poetry has that sort of license in its, in its expressions, and, 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 and we just need to take that in stride. Against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him, notice, first person plural we, third person plural they, first, third person singular him. It's just the way it, it's written. So he poured on him, on Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire. God's discipline set him on fire all around, but he didn't understand. It burned him up, but he didn't take it to heart. 
you know, sometimes we're not very good at paying attention. Even when the disciplines of God set us on fire, we don't necessarily feel it enough to take it to heart. We think God is unfeeling. That's what we tell ourselves. We blame Him. But He is not the problem. The problem is that our lives bear little resemblance to His purpose. That's why Judah went into national exile. That's why churches today go into institutional exile. That's why we need reformation as individuals and as churches. Now, what is God's remedy? Point number two. Chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. But now, those are happy words. Do you see how abruptly Isaiah transitions from our problem to God's remedy? The Jacob and Israel, here in verse 1 of chapter 43 are just as blind and deaf as Jacob and Israel back in chapter 42. But now does not signal any change in us. It declares the grace of God. The reason for the but now is not even our repentance, but only God himself. Verse 3. For, here's the reason. This is why God is a redeemer. Four, verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, if we force him to, God will put us through the fires. But he still says, fear not. Why? Because we do deeply fear that God will abandon us and give us what we deserve. But he says, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do we belong to him? We do. The gospel says we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. But even more deeply, He belongs to us because he has given himself to us. We can stop being fearful that he will abandon us. Look at his commitment to us. He says here, I created you. I formed you. I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. In other words, what matters most about you is not what you deserve, but whose you are. Now, the disciplines of God are real. He knows how to get tough with us when we really need it, and we push Him, push Him, push Him. But the disciplines of God are not His last word to us. Redemption is.
Whatever life throws at you, including the tough love of God himself, he will go with you into it and take you through it. So let's not think of God as aloof when we go through the fires and floods of life. The truth is, according to verse 4, he's acting boldly, giving peoples in exchange for your life. That is politically incorrect. When we think about how God orders events for our benefit, it's actually embarrassing. (laughs) God saved Israel at Egypt's expense expense back in uh, Moses' day. God handed Babylon over to Cyrus the Great, took it away from the Babylonians, gave it to Cyrus the Great and the Medo-Persian Empire to release the Jews from exile. Why does God care so actively for us? There is only one reason, verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. God orchestrates history to benefit his blind and deaf servants because we're precious in his eyes and honored and he loves us. But you know, there's an even deeper explanation for the grace of God. He's given himself to us. He'll go through uh, with us through affliction. We're precious to him. He loves us and so forth. In, in the cross of Christ, God proved he would rather die than lose one of us. Literally. But why? So let's push our thinking all the way to ultimacy. In verses 5 through 7, we see the ultimate purpose of God in loving us. So look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God loves us to the praise of his glorious grace, as we read in Ephesians a while ago. Our destiny is to be a living advertisement, exhibit A, of how good God is to people who deserve the opposite. Do not think of God as playing a supporting role in a movie that features you and me as the big stars. His purpose is to bring the glory of his sweetness down into our taste so that he is admired and delighted in above all else. That's when other things start to fall away and we get traction for bold reformation. Our lives actually change. Number three, the reason. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know, not just that that the nations may know, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. You see, in the Babylonian pantheon, the gods were formed out of mush and stuff. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, 
I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. The purpose of God is the glory of God to the exclusion of all rival glories. Besides me there is no Savior. So there's no room in the Christian gospel for this idea that Jesus is only one of many spiritual paths. There's no room in the gospel even for the idea that Jesus is the best way. Do you see, in Isaiah's argument, the ultimate reason why God loves us at all is for us to be his witnesses, to be for us to be living proof that he alone is the all-satisfying God. Now, other religions and worldviews, to whatever the degree and at whatever points they may intersect with reality, can have something to say. But their deepest intention is not to glorify God as God on God's terms. And the only truth is the truth that glorifies God as God. Everything else is compromised with idolatry. And God intends to put all rival glories out of business. Because the idols of the modern world are life-depleting, joy-killing disappointments. God says in verse 11, Besides me, there is no Savior. Every idol, if you don't toe the line, demands its pound of flesh. If you're serving the idol of career and you don't sacrifice to that idol as it demands, your career is over. But what happens when you defy the Savior God? He restores you. He reforms your life. He saves us. Why? To make us his witnesses, not just that he is good, but that he is the only true goodness any human being will ever experience. Throughout this section, and not just in our passage today, but throughout this whole section of Isaiah, you've begun to notice a pattern, I'll bet. But here he says, God says, I am he. I, I am the Lord. I am God. He takes it from so many different angles. He's making a point that there is no other. Can you receive that? C.S. Lewis lays out the alternatives. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the string, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, that is another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing burglars hush suddenly 
Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he found us. You know, in our world today, it's cool to search for God, but it is uncool to find him. Are you willing to be uncool and find and embrace your only Savior? Fourthly, the outcome, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon. Here's the first time in the second part of our book, chapters 40 and following, that uh, we encounter the word Babylon. For your sake I send to Babylon, remember where the Jews were being held exile, and bring them, the Babylonians, all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now what is Isaiah saying? He's saying that the reality of God is not just a matter of historical record. The living God comes down into our experience today. He proves all over again to us where it counts for us that he's real. And not because we deserve it, but just because of who he is, our king. Isaiah is saying that for the sake of a dumpy little second-rate petty kingdom named Judah that most Babylonians probably had never even heard of, God is going to turn those proud Babylonians into fugitives, rushing down to their ships to escape their conquerors. Why does God do that? Because his people are a big deal? No. It's because he is our Redeemer, which means he has taken us on as his personal responsibility. And he will release us from every bondage we suffer. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. Uh, Isaiah is alluding to the, to the Exodus back in Moses' day. They lie down, they cannot rise, they're extinguished, quenched like a wick. And God says, here's what he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert for the Jewish exiles to come home. Now, the Exodus, way back in the days of Moses, therefore, you see what he's saying? That was not a one-time event. It was a pattern. It's repeatable. It is God's standard modus operandi with us through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he's saying... In his word, 
If we shouldn't so concentrate on His mercies in the past that we miss the new things He's doing today. God never acts out of character. But a part of His character is that He never runs out of new ideas. And He is able in amazing ways to lead you and me through the Red Sea barrier before us today. In fact, He will if we'll follow Him. And what does He get out of it? Verse 21. That they might declare my praise. That's the purpose of God. And He will never surrender His purpose. He is the one and only true God. And He will have it known. That's His ultimate purpose. To magnify Himself in the glory of His grace for our everlasting salvation and joy. And as that glory grips our hearts right now, we are empowered to live heroic lives in a God-denying and God-minimizing, God-trivializing world. Greatness comes upon us as we realign our lives with our true purpose. And it's not a burden. It's a thrill. <laughs> Jim Elliot was a heroic man. He understood this. By God's grace, he got in sync with God's purpose. Let me read to you a brief entry from his diary in 1951. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart. To gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I don't care if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him. Please Him. Perhaps in mercy He will give me a host of children that I might lead them through the vast star fields to explore His delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see Him, smell His garments, Smile into his eyes. Ah, then. Not stars or children shall matter. Only himself. What really matters to you? Do you know what we need as a church? We need to refocus. All that matters is himself. According to his purpose, is that okay with you? Is he enough for you? Or 
Do you demand something else? You need to make up your mind. And then follow through with some bold reformation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you created us for your glory. We only dimly understand what that means. Help us to grasp it and to rejoice in it. We pray in your holy name. Amen.